I want you to take your copy of the Word of God and open it with me in the New Testament to the book of Acts tonight, if you will, to Acts chapter number 17. And while you're finding your place in Acts 17, let me just ask you, how many of you believe in divine appointments? I do too. In fact, I, I know there have been many of them the Lord's made for me. I regret to tell you, I think I've missed some of them. Every appointment God makes for you, you don't always keep. You know that, right? But when you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, sensitive to God's leadership and prompting, God has a way of connecting the dots, so to speak, in a way that you could never do. And when you come to Acts chapter number 17, you come to one of these great divine appointments of the Bible. It was an appointment made for the Apostle Paul. And interestingly enough, it is one of two sermons given in the book of Acts purely to a Gentile audience. Now, there are Jewish people there, but the context was in the Gentile world. I'll be in Israel in just a few weeks, and we love the Jewish people. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Could I encourage you? Continue to pray for that. While you're at it, pray that America stays peaceful to Jerusalem. That'd be really good. But I'm a Gentile. Let's take a survey. How many Gentiles are here tonight? Would you raise your hand? Let me help you. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, all right? So when you come to a passage like this and the gospel is coming to the Gentile people, every time I read it, something on the inside of me just jumps up and down and says, thank you, Jesus, for this. It is to the Jew first and, and that's right, also to the Greek. Aren't you glad for the also in the Word of God? And God's heart for all people. And Christ dying for every man. And the message of grace coming to all that would receive it. And in Acts chapter 17, there's a Gentile audience, but it was a most unlikely one in an unexpected place. And Paul preached a lot of sermons, but this is one of the most famous sermons he ever preached. And interestingly enough, it was not a sermon he planned on preaching. Isn't that fascinating? It was not a preaching engagement. It was not a crusade he was conducting. It was a divine appointment. Look at Acts chapter number 17, beginning in verse number 15. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, <laughs> aren't you glad God works in the now? Do you all believe every word of Scripture is given by inspiration of God here? You all believe that, right? Look at the verse. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Arpagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bring us certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Time out just a second. Look at me. Welcome to Athens. We're living in Athens, aren't we? Given to idolatry, surrounded by immorality, full of people on one end of the spectrum who are moralists, who are trying to make the world a better place from which people will go to hell trying to fix the problems without knowing the true and living God. And on the other end of the pendulum, the other extreme, people would say the only thing that you're here for is just have a good time and enjoy your life, enjoy the pleasures of this life. And both extremes are wrong because both extremes ignore God. Marked by a desire for novelty, 
always trying to tell her here some new things. May I, may I say, novelty is the scourge of American Christianity. People don't want eternal truth. They want some new thing. People don't need some new thing. They need a fresh glimpse of the eternal God. That's what they need. This is Athens, and this is where we're living. Might I say, you're not in Jerusalem anymore. Now, there was a day in our beloved land when there was a religious context and Bible literacy and, and the name of Christ was revered and the holy things were at least counted sacred even by people who were not believers. I want you to know those days have passed. And you can sit around and fuss at all you want to. Or you can see it as a divine appointment. Let me ask you a question, church. Do you think God knew what generation you would live in? He didn't just know it. He planned it. And the sovereign God of heaven, who knows the end from the beginning, for some reason, allowed you to be breathing near the end of the age. I'm going to tell you what I think. I think it's a privilege to get to live near the rapture. I really do. And yet everywhere I go, I'm meeting Christians who are just wringing their hands and talking about how bad it is in Athens. May I tell you, God's people should not be whining their way to the rapture. Those who know Jesus ought not grumble and groan their way to the judgment seat of Christ. And you can talk about how bad it is all you want to. I'm going to just tell you this right now. When we stand next to the martyrs at the judgment seat, it's going to be pretty embarrassing when we say to them, well, I'll tell you, our culture was really bad. In the words of Hebrews, you've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And yet lots of God's people want to gather in big, beautiful church buildings and sit in comfortable seats and hear a guy like me get up and rail on the sins around them and never, excuse me, do a blessed thing to try to touch Athens with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know, it's not an accident you're alive right now. It is a divine purpose. Yea, it is a divine appointment that God has given us this generation and this nation to reach for Jesus Christ. And spiritual people don't stick their head in the sand, think about, you know, wish I lived at a different day and if we could just have the old days back. Spiritual people get their head up and their eyes on the harvest and their eyes on Christ and say, Dear Lord, while I'm here, what do you want to accomplish? So keep reading. Verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. I love it. I just absolutely love it. He wasn't mean, he wasn't ugly, he wasn't unkind. He started right where they were and led them right where they needed to be. He said, you, you want to know who the unknown God is? I know him. You know him? I know him. Let me tell you about it. He goes all the way back to Genesis 1, verse number 1. Look at verse number 24. God. How many of you think that's a pretty good starting place? God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. 
that they should seek the Lord. If happily they might feel after him and find him, though, and I love this expression, he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we're the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Everybody stare at verse 32. Is there a period after the word mocked in your Bible? Yes or no? I know. Shouldn't be. It's not the end of the sentence. Excuse me, kids, for using dirty grammar language in church. What comes after that word right in the middle of the verse? Look at verse 32. After mocked, what comes there? There's a colon. You know what that means? It means there's more to come, and what comes after is connected to what went before. Talk to me just a second. Is it true that some mock, yes or no? I didn't hear you. Is it true that some mock, yes or no? Do you believe that in our world when you talk about Jesus and speak the truth, some are going to mock, yes or no? Of course they are. But keep reading. Praise God for this. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So you got some that just mock at it and then some start thinking. Don't you love how the gospel seed starts to work in the hearts of men? And they say, we'll, we'll hear more about this. And then, oh, I love this. Look at verse 33. So Paul departed from among them. How be it? Praise God for this. Certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dinosius the Arpagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Watch this. For all that were mocking and delaying in verse 32, aren't you glad for the handful of people in verse 34 that believed on Christ and became followers of the Lord Jesus? I'm glad to report to this church tonight, God Almighty is still at work in this world. Every week of my life, I'm in a different part of the country. I just got back last night from Kansas. You know what I discovered? The gospel works everywhere. It works everywhere. I didn't mean everybody wants to hear it. I didn't mean everybody responds to it. But I've learned this. I can get off an airplane anywhere in the world with nothing but the Word of God and the gospel message, and it's an amazing thing. The Holy Spirit of God will connect that truth to somebody in that audience. Look, the gospel has not lost its power. Everybody's favorite verse right now is, and they always say it with a sigh, too. It goes something like this. Well, you know, preacher, <sighs> evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. How many of you have heard that lately? That's true. And I always say to those people, yes, do you know the next verse? But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned I love our state of West Virginia. I grew up here, born and raised in the mountains. It's my favorite place on earth. I married a Michigan girl, and the Lord works in Michigan too. Aren't you glad about that? For 23 years, we lived in Tennessee, loved serving the Lord there. When I went into evangelism several years ago, we moved back, made this home, and I loved every minute of it. But I'm grieved. I'm grieved in our own beloved state. What's happened? Churches are empty, closing. You meet young people, 
They know nothing about the gospel. I'm talking about in the buckle of the Bible belt. I'm talking about in, in West Virginia where everybody goes to church, where everybody's grandma's a preacher in West Virginia, you know, where everybody's been saved and baptized two or three times, you know. Mm -mm. There's such a biblical illiteracy and ignorance of God. What's happened? I'll tell you what's happened. We've moved to Athens. But I want to say to this church tonight, this community needs the gospel message this church represents more than it ever has. And if there was ever a day that some Paul needs to be wide awake enough to the needs going on around them and to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, if there's ever a day that there was a man and woman and a young person in this community that met the divine appointment, it is the day that you and I are living in at this moment. I wish I had time to walk you through the whole passage. I don't. So let me limit my thoughts just to a couple things. Would you get a pen out? Do you have something to write? Mark some things in your Bible. I want to draw your attention to a phrase in verse number 16. It's, it's an interesting phrase. It's the first phrase. It's a phrase that almost, almost, we just kind of breeze over like, oh, yeah, that's in there. That's just information. Can I just remind you that the Bible is not information. It is revelation. So nothing is incidental here. Everything's inspired. And if that is true, there's a message in it. Look at the first phrase of verse number, verse number of. Uh, 16. Now, here's the phrase, while Paul, mm, that's a tough word, isn't it? How many of you like to wait? Any people just love to wait? Let me confess my sin. We're in church. Let me confess my sin. Tammy and I decided on our drive down, we're going to drive through a coffee shop and get a cup of coffee. And uh, that was a great idea until the people in front of us just took way too long. And I got in the flesh. Testify, sister, I got in the flesh. And I said, what's wrong with these people? I'm telling you, no common sense anymore. How, how difficult is it to hand a cup of coffee out the window? And on, on, on I went. I'm just not a patient person. How many of you are with me on that? Thank you. It makes me feel better. I appreciate it. But may I say to you, there are seasons in life where God will let you wait. Please don't miss this. While we are waiting, God is always working. No, no, that's not all. While we are waiting, there is some work God has for us to do. Here's Paul waiting on his partners, waiting on his sons and, and brethren in the ministry, and he's alone. Oh, wait a minute. But he's not alone because a Christian is never alone. I never go anywhere by myself. Jesus is with me everywhere I go. And yet here is Paul, humanly speaking, he's alone. He's surrounded by corruption. He's an athlete. And everywhere he turns, there's filth. Everywhere it turns, promiscuity. Everywhere it turns, false religion. Everywhere it turns, some awful blasphemous thing against Almighty God. Don't you think that would affect a man like Paul? And yet, please don't miss this. It was while he waited there that God Almighty did one of the mightiest gospel works in Paul's ministry. You know what I think? I think sometimes we miss the parentheses of life. You know the little interludes, the, the in-between times? When you're not really expecting God to do anything, do you understand that very often that's when the Lord makes appointments for us? The delay, the detour. For me, I've learned through the years, a missed flight is usually a divine appointment. Now, I hate it with a purple passion. I hate it. I mean, I've run for planes before trying to make a connection and get there out of breath and 
sweating profusely, just to hear them say, we're so sorry, sir, we just closed the door. And the flesh wants to rear up. But I've learned, I've learned from experience the hard way, that very often God was going to put me on a different plane in a different seat next to a different person because on that plane there was someone whose heart he was opening to the gospel message. And I wonder in my own impatience how many times I have failed to wait on God. Look, you're not waiting on men. You're waiting on God. And here we are. Some of us in this room dealing with difficult circumstances. You know what you're waiting on? Some of us say, yeah, I'm waiting to feel better. I'm, I'm waiting on that person to straighten out. I'm, I'm waiting on this circumstance to get better. I'm waiting on a job promotion. I'm waiting on that business deal to go through. No, you're not. You're waiting on the divine timing of a God who is always at work. And in the waiting, God is up to something. People say, we're just waiting on Jesus to come back. Brother, you're not supposed to just be waiting. You're supposed to be working while you're waiting. We're not coasting our way to glory. In fact, I think when Jesus shows up, the gladdest thing you could be doing is getting the gospel out and bringing people to Jesus Christ. You understand, someday somebody's going to give the gospel message for the last time and the last soul is going to be saved and the trumpet's going to, be, going to sound. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that? And yet I see so many of God's children who are, excuse me, fussing through their waiting period instead of looking for how God Almighty could use them. Do you see him? Oh, not Paul. No, no. Do you see him leaning on a well? Weary with his journey? Needing a drink of water. The disciples have gone away into the city to get lunch. They've gone to McDonald's to see if they can get a hamburger. And what's Jesus doing? Tell me, what's he doing? He's just sitting there, what? Waiting. No, he's not just waiting. No, no, there's, there's a divine appointment getting ready to take place at that well. There's a woman coming to that well. Do you understand? It was while the disciples had gone away to the city. It was in the parenthesis. It was in the in-between time. It was in the time where most of us would not have expected any great thing to be done that a Samaritan woman was gloriously saved and a whole city opened up to the gospel message. Now, I came to say tonight, while we are waiting on things to get better and while we are waiting on Jesus to come, we ought to be looking to, for souls that we can bring to Jesus Christ. Look, I'm not a prophet. I have no idea what Washington's going to do. Only Jesus knows what Washington's going to do. I don't know what Wall Street's going to do. I have no idea what the future holds, but I know this. We are here in the now, and while we are waiting, God is working in this world to take out a people for his name. And when God said evil men and seducers would get worse and worse, he never said his power would wax less and less. And I think one of the great curses of the church world today is so low expectations. People are just crossing their fingers and holding on to Jesus comes. Excuse me. Jesus didn't say, hold the fort. Jesus said, you charge against the gates of hell. Too much apathy and passive Christianity. And I say to you while we're waiting, there's some things that God wants us to do. I'll give you four words tonight. Four words. When we're done, you'll say the preacher gave a four-word sermon. That's it. Takes a long time to get four words in, doesn't it? And they're not my words, they're God's words. I want you to mark them in your Bible. They all start with the same letter, so they're going to be really easy to remember. But if you remember these four words, these four words are four things you can do this week while you're waiting. Here they are. Let's start, please, in verse number 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw. Would you circle the little word saw? 
He saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Number one, you ready? While we're waiting, you can see people like God sees them. See, my problem is I see people like I see them. Be honest now. Be honest. How many of you in the last two years have gotten annoyed and aggravated with the culture? Would you raise your hand? I mean, honestly, every time you turn the news on, excuse me, sin just gets dumber and dumber. Do you know what I'm observing among many of God's people? Many of the Lord's people are angry. And I want to remind you that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God, excuse me, and your anger, just because it's religious, isn't any more spiritual than their anger because they're worldly. Flesh answers to flesh, and far too often in an angry world with hateful people and harsh circumstances, you know what happens to Christians? We get hard. We start looking at people and getting annoyed and aggravated and ticked off at at the decisions they're making and the things they're doing and, and the country that they're messing up, and we start fussing at them instead of witnessing to them. Could I remind you why there is so much insanity in our world? Because there is a miserable insanity to sin. Sin at its core is a lie. It is ignorance. It is a rejection of truth. Look, you reject truth, you believe a lie. You reject light, you get darkness. That is exactly what has happened in our world today. And as surely as the prodigal had to come to himself, sinners have to come to themselves. Could we all just go back and remember where we would be if Jesus Christ had not saved us? I'm going to tell you who has the hardest time with it, those of us who've been in church our whole life. Because after a while, we've been around it so much, and we got this Christian thing all professionally figured out, the spit shine and polished, we clean up good for Sunday school on Sunday, and we forget that but for the grace of God, we're all black-hearted, hell-deserving sinners who'd be in hell now and for eternity if Jesus had not seen us with compassion. We must see through the lens of Scripture. We must see through the eyes of Jesus. We must see through, through the lens of heaven. I wonder, do you really see people like God sees them? Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white, all ready to harvest. Forget what you think. Forget what you think. Listen to me, please. Our debates and discussions are not going to bring about some great transformation in this world. There is not a politician that can fix what's wrong with our country. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. And that will only happen when the Lord's people start seeing sinners like Jesus sees them. Let me ask you a personal question. When was the last time you wept over a sinner? We get sarcastic about them. We get cynical. Let me ask you something. Why on earth should we be surprised when sinners act like sinners? Why? Why? Like you really think God's shocked that sinners are going deeper and deeper into darkness? That's what happens when people reject God. Something's happened to God's people. We've lost our burden. We've lost our brokenness. I remember in the early days of my Christian faith being so stirred up about seeing people saved. I remember kneeling next to a man's couch when I an elderly man hour or so from right here where I'm standing tonight and pleading with him for his soul. His name was Pete. Pete and Mary, they were lost. They were lost. Man, they were lost. And I remember, I was just a young man, very young man, but I remember pleading with that man to put his faith in Jesus, repent of his sin and believe on Christ. 
And I remember that glad night when Pete finally bowed his head and called on God for salvation. I remember that night. I remember leaving a man's house one night and pulling out of his subdivision, and my heart was so broken for him, I couldn't drive. I pulled the car over by myself, pulled the car over in his subdivision and wept for his soul and prayed, oh, God, save him. And days later, Gene Milner came to Christ. I remember that. You know why I'm telling you that? Because I'm, I'm judging me. See, I can't judge you. You'll have to judge you. And you can't judge me because you don't know me. But I'm judging me right now while I'm talking to you because I'm thinking, how long has that been? I mean, I travel all the time, preach almost every day of my life and work and trying to get the gospel out. But I wonder, how long has it been since I had somebody really passionately on my heart that I was pursuing for Jesus Christ? Let me tell you where it's all got to start. It has to start with what you see. Do you remember what the prophet said? Mine eye affecteth mine heart. And let me just meddle for a moment. Stop looking at this world through the lens of conservative news. So aren't you conservative? Yes. Don't you want to know the news? Yes. Do you listen to it? Yes. But I'm going to tell you something. When you feed your soul more on conservative news than you do the eternal truth of the Word of God, after a while, you're going to get what some commentator and prognosticator thinks, but you're not going to be thinking like God thinks. There's only one way to know God's thoughts, and that's through God's Word. You want to see people like God sees them? Look at those people through the lens of the eternal Word of God. See them as sinners for whom Jesus died, who will perish and spend eternity separated from God in a devil's hell if they do not experience the grace of God. Weep for their souls and pray, Oh God, let me see Athens like Jesus sees Athens. It begins first with what we see. That's not all. Go back to reverse, please. Look at verse 16 again. The Bible says his spirit was stirred. Would you mark the word stirred? While you're waiting to see what the future is going to hold, while you're waiting to see what's going to happen in the next election, while you're waiting to see what the next bit of news is that comes out, why don't you pray that God would stir your spirit for people? Do you see the connection between your eyes and your heart? And let me just say this. I, I love emotion, especially when it's sanctified emotion. I'm a passionate person. But friends, our emotion has to be more than just a, a temporary you know, I had a feeling and enjoyed that church service and got a warm tingle up my spine. Let me tell you, the deepest heart is the heart that feels like Jesus feels. Let me tell you what Jesus feels deeply about tonight. Souls. See, that's why he died. I think we even start looking at church selfishly. People come to get something out of church. I even hear people talk that way. Get something out of church. Friend, let me just tell you something. God has already given you a whole lot in his grace, and we're not supposed to be depositories. We're supposed to be channels of that grace to other people. The church I grew up in as a boy, occasionally we'd have somebody decide to leave the church. Y'all probably never have that happen here. A church is wonderful. I'm sure nobody would ever leave, but every now and then somebody get worked up about something, and usually it was something that really didn't matter. Not the great scheme of eternity, it didn't. And on their way out the back door, they always said something real spiritual sounded something like this. Maybe you've heard it. They would say, well, we just weren't getting fed. I learned something after a while. Lived long enough and observed enough of those people to figure something out. The problem with most of those people was not that they weren't getting fed. Not most of the time. The problem with most of those people is they never learned to feed anybody else. They were dead sea Christians. 
Life flowed into them, and nothing ever flowed out of them. So they sat in church for 30 years, got more spiritually bloated all the time, and never learned a single day how to minister to somebody else. I'm going to tell you what we need. We need a fresh stirring among God's people to turn things inside out, upside down, and get out of ourselves and say, by the grace of God, I'm going to do something to reach somebody for Jesus Christ. There is a joy and a power and a blessing that attends obedience unlike any other thing. Let Paul see it, and then let Paul get stirred in his soul. And might I say this? The real challenge is not getting stirred. It's staying stirred. How many of you know what I'm talking about? So you get in church, get all stirred up. We're going to charge hell with a squirt gun, win the whole world to Christ. You know what I'm talking about. And then two days later, we're so everlasting busy and distracted. Aren't we distracted and busy people? It's not that we've given ourselves to bad things. We're giving ourselves to good things that really don't matter in the great scheme of things. So how do you keep yourself stirred? Peter had a little secret to that when he wrote his letter later in the New Testament. He said, I want to stir you up by way of remembrance. We are such forgetful people. I'm going to tell you how to stay stirred Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. You ready for this? Go back in your memory. I'm talking about your spiritual memory and remember what a sinner you are and remember what a Savior Jesus is and remember how short time is and remember how long eternity is and remember how glorious the cross is And remember what Jesus has done for you. Look, use your memory to stir your soul. And as you do, you'll stay stirred to try to get other people saved. Because it will remind you every day, not just on Sunday, that we're living in Athens. And while we're waiting, God wants to use us. There's a third word I want you to mark. Come down in the passage to verse number 22. Then Paul, what's the next word, church? Would you mark it in your Bible? He saw, he was stirred, and now he stood. I love that, having done all to stand. What does it mean to stand? It means God's people should not be cowering in fear or retreating in defeat. They should be standing boldly and unashamedly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love the context where he stood. Look at verse 17. He stood in religious places and he stood in everyday places. That's beautiful. Look at verse 17. He started in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. That's the religious places. That's the places of worship and and religious instruction. You would expect him to stand there, but please don't miss the end of verse 17. You want to turn this town upside down? I'm going to tell you how. Look at it. And in the market daily with them that met with him. Let me ask you a question. How many of you think the pastor of this church and the preachers that preach in this pulpit ought to preach the gospel here in this building? How many of you think they ought to preach the gospel? Would you raise your hand, please? I wouldn't go to a church where they didn't preach the gospel. I I wouldn't want to sit and listen to a preacher that didn't want to lift up Jesus Christ. But I want to say to you, on the authority of the Word of God, that as surely as the minister is supposed to preach the gospel and tell the truth in the religious context, in the public sphere, when big crowds of people are there, all of God's children are supposed to be preaching that same gospel and telling that same truth in the market daily. It is the only way to evangelize this world for Jesus Christ. It's the only way. See, the Great Commission didn't say open the church doors and let all the lucky sinners come find you. The Great Commission said go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. See, I came with an agenda tonight. That's right. i just be up front with you, transparent. I came on an agenda tonight. I'm on a recruiting mission, but it's a good recruiting mission. It's a really good agenda. It's not mine. It belongs to Jesus. I came to see tonight how many of the Lord's people I could enlist this week to grab them a handful of gospel tracts and carry their own testimony this week and the truth of Christ and tell somebody what Jesus means to you. 
Because in a world where everybody is shifting and lots of people are falling, somebody has to stand. And I've discovered that very often that standing is not done on some political platform or even some platform in a church building. The greatest standing for the gospel's sake takes place in everyday life. About a year ago, I was home for a couple of days and I needed something done on the car. I don't remember what it was. And I asked my dad, who's, who's been here all of his life, he knows everybody, everybody knows him. I said, I said, I need to get something done on the vehicle. Where, where should I take it? Who do you trust? And immediately he said to me, there's a man downtown in Beckley. He said, uh, he's got a little shop on the corner, told me where it was. He said, he's a good man, he's a Christian man, does good work, you can trust him. All right. I drove to the shop. This was not a ministry day. This was not a travel day. This was not a preaching day. This was not a, this was not a public ministry day. In fact, let me just tell you what it was. It was one of those ordinary days. You know the kind. The in-between days, the parenthesis days, the while Paul waited days. I got there, introduced myself to the man. We chatted a little bit, and he said, I can take care of that. He said, can you wait just a few minutes? Sure. They've got the vehicle, and he and I are sitting over in his office just chatting a little bit, and a man comes through. The owner of the shop, who is a, a definite Christian, an outspoken Christian, said to me, he said, that man right there, that man right there, he said, I've been praying for his salvation. And he said, he got saved the other day. I said, that's wonderful. Now, this is a shopkeeper, it's a mechanic. He said to me, he said, in fact, preacher, he said, I've been praying for every man in this shop. He said, I'm trying to get every one of them saved. He said, and that one finally got saved the other day. And a guy came through about that time, and he said to him, called him by name, he said, tell the preacher what happened to you. And the guy stopped. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And he just started talking about the goodness of God. And he said, you know, preacher, he said, I'm such a sinner. And he said, the other day, he said, it just all opened up to me. And he said, I finally understood. And he said, I, I asked Jesus to be my Savior. And, oh, it was just wonderful. Now, while we're having that conversation, that was a great conversation, Another fella comes walking through. And I knew, because the man had already given me a little heads up, lots of lost men in this place. And this man overhears the conversation, somehow inserts himself in the conversation. And within a few moments, we're having a gospel conversation with this man just talking about Jesus. And wouldn't you know it, standing there in the shop, that fella got saved. And about that time, another fella came through, and he said, you know, I'm a Christian. He said, but I need some help. And we stepped outside and talked and prayed together. And I mean, honestly, it was like a spiritual awakening at the body shop. And I got in the car, and it dawned on me that if every Christian in our churches was as awakened in tune with God as the owner of that shop, we'd turn this world upside down for Christ. Don't, don't wait on the pastor to preach better sermons. No, no, that's not what we need. What we need are God's people to be better witnesses. He saw, he was stirred, he stood, and then, now here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. You ready? Everybody hold on to your seat. This is the big one. Look at verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and what? Said. <laughs> this is deep. You ready? He actually opened his mouth and spoke. 
The whole premise of the word witness means you have to say something. Would you like to know the difference between Lot and Paul? Paul opened his mouth and Lot never did. Read about Lot. He was a saved man. Yes, he was. The Bible calls him a just man, a righteous man. It goes this far. Let's tell you how, how just and righteous he was on the inside. The Bible says he vexed his righteous soul every day with their ungodly deeds. And he never opened his mouth. You know, we've got, we've got a whole generation of Christians in churches who are vexed over the unrighteousness in Washington, over the wickedness in the world, over the ungodliness in their state, over the sin in their neighborhood. They're vexed over it, but they never open their mouth to give the one message that can actually change somebody's heart. And you know what it was, don't you? It was the gospel. It's the goodness of God. Is the world bad? Yes. May I speak for young people for just a moment? Young people don't need to grow up hearing us old people talk about how bad everything is. I mean, I've been in youth meetings. I'm in a lot of youth meetings. I've been in youth meetings where, where ministers got up and said to young people, I just want to tell you one thing, kids. I'm glad I don't have to grow up in your generation. And I thought, Lord, have mercy. Don't tell my kids that. You know what that is? That's speaking in unbelief. Because that's saying the sin of the world is greater than the goodness of God. In a world full of bad news, you know what people need to hear? The gospel. You know what gospel means? Good news. They need to hear about sin, but they need to hear about salvation. Somebody has to open their mouth and point them to Jesus. Let me show you something interesting. Go back up to verse number 17. There's a word here I want you to understand. The Bible says, therefore, disputed here. Would you mark the little word disputed in your Bible? When I say disputed, what comes to your mind? That's right. I'm going to win this argument. I'm going to tell them off. I'm going to outwit them and outword them. I'm going to back them in a corner. I'm going to belittle them. I'm going to dispute with what they believe, and I'm going to prove how really stupid they are and how right I am. Can I tell you what this word dispute means? It does not mean any of that. You ready? Write this in the margin of your Bible. The word disputed there literally was the common word of the day for conversation. Somebody said, well, I can't preach a sermon. All right, don't preach a sermon. Just have a conversation. Somebody said, well, I can't answer all their questions. Join the club, get in line, take a number. None of us can answer all their questions. Somebody said, well, I, I don't know, preacher, exactly what to say. Hold up just a minute. Why don't you just have a conversation? And by the way, don't have a conversation about church. Have a conversation about Jesus. I'm off bringing people to church, but I'm going to tell you something. When you start with church, very often you never get to Christ because church shuts things down. You get to Jesus because only Jesus can save the soul. And I'll tell you what we need. We need a revival of God's people simply having a conversation about Christ. And I wonder, while you're waiting, in the in-between time, if maybe God wants to use you to bring somebody to Jesus. On our drive down here tonight, Tammy and I listened to three or four or five updates from some of our dearest friends in the world. Little audio updates. They are missionaries in the Middle East. They're in a, what would be called a closed country. And they're seeing people saved. They don't have a building like this. They'll never have a building like this. Never. Not in the city they're in. 
But they have people in their home, and they teach them the Bible. And they point them to Christ. <laughs> and they love them to God. And the Lord is, is just, he's opening things. People now who are being discipled are starting to, to give the gospel to others and win others to Christ. It's like this spiritual chain reaction. Isn't that exciting to see? And I got just so encouraged and convicted at the same time listening to him talk about it because he was just so thrilled. And he said, I mean, we're talking about a guy living in a part of the world that there is actual peril, actual danger for he and his family, and they have to be wise as servants and harmless as doves, and we take so much for granted with our liberty. And the exuberance in his voice, he said, I just want you to know I can't think of anything I would rather do with my life than get the gospel to these people and see them pass it on to their people. Don't you think it might be good if some of us got that exuberance back in us? And I know we're tired. I know we're weary with things. I know we're disappointed by people. I get it. But Paul, while you're waiting, surrounded in Athens, and your friends haven't come yet, God's up to something. A few years ago, I was flying back from a meeting on the West Coast. I was I was tired. It was a Saturday. We were living in Knoxville. I was trying to get home. and I had spoken several times on Friday and Saturday. I, my voice was tired. My brain was tired. My body was tired. And this is going to sound terrible. This is going to sound terrible. I actually prayed as I got on the plane, Dear Lord, please don't let me sit next to anybody. I did. And God answered my prayer. Huge jumbo jet. I bet there weren't 20 people on the whole plane. That didn't happen anymore for sure. I went back, just found a seat, plopped down, plane took off, I laid the chair back, went to sleep. And I thought, good, I don't have to talk to anybody. I woke up about 20 minutes later. I wish I could tell you when I wake up I have spiritual thoughts. I usually don't. Usually my first thought is I need coffee. That's a good thought, right? But I woke up. And I had this thought in my mind. I know, I know it came from God. I know it was the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I know it. See, the Lord had made a divine appointment for me, and I didn't know it. He was trying to get me to it. And this was the thought I woke up with, that it had been weeks. Now, I'm a preacher, and I'd just been preaching. And we'd seen people saved, but it had been weeks since I had personally just had a conversation with somebody and, and taken a piece of gospel literature and talked to them one-on-one -on -one about Jesus. See, I think Christian people ought to do that kind of thing. And I'm challenging other people to do it, and I'm under conviction now because I'm thinking, you know, it's been weeks since I've done that. So I bowed my head and I prayed a prayer. Be very careful what you pray. And I said to the Lord, Lord, if you'll give me somebody, I'll talk to them. At that moment, out of the corner of my eye, I see a guy seated across the aisle from me in the other section, all by himself. And the Holy Spirit said, there you go. And I said, I don't think that's the one, Lord. <laughs> in fact, I reached across the aisle and tried to get his attention. I couldn't get his attention. So I said to the Lord, I don't think that's him, Lord. And the Lord wouldn't leave me alone about it. Finally, I reached across the aisle I don't like to be disturbed. I don't like to disturb people, but I tapped him on the shoulder. He turned, a businessman. I stuck my hand out, introduced myself. He introduced himself, and the moment he did, I heard his accent, and I said, where are you from? He said, Persia. 
I said, as in Iran? He said, yes, Iran. I said, what do you do? He said, I'm a dentist. He said, I have a practice here in the States, and I have a practice there. And he said, I fly back and forth between the two. We start talking about lots of things, and I'm trying to get an entry point. How many of you know in having a conversation about Christ, the hardest thing to do is just get started? Because you can talk all the way around him and never get to him, you know? So I'm trying to find an entry point, and I asked a dumb question. I said to him, tell me about your religious background. Well, I mean, honestly, the man's from Iran. What do you think his religious background is? And he said to me, I'm a Muslim. Now the wheels are turning. I'm thinking, what am I going to say next? And what's this man going to say? And before I could think of what to say, he said to me with real assertiveness, would you like to know the difference between my religion and your religion? And I thought, oh, brother, I've really done it now. And we're 30,000 feet in the air, and I didn't even want to talk to anybody to start with. And now we're going to have a dispute. I said, yes, sir, what's that? He said, my religion growing up taught me to hate my enemies and even to kill them. He said, but in my travels recently in, in America, he said, it seems that the, the religion of the Christian people is that you, you are taught to love your enemies. He said, is that right? I said, yes, sir, that's correct. He said, well, best I can tell, that's the big difference between the two religions. He said, explain that to me. I mean, it's like, that's like saying sick him to a dog, you know? I mean, like, it's like, here, let me open the door for you. And I got my Bible out, and I said, well, let me explain to you. It's really not about our love. Let's back up just a minute. Let me tell you about who started all this. And we had a little Bible study. About 30 minutes it went on. We're still talking. The plane lands, Memphis, Tennessee. We got off the plane together. Both of us had another flight. And the um, airport was fairly empty that night. And I said to my new friend, I said, are you in a hurry? He said, I have a long layover. I said, you want to sit and chat a little more? He said, I'd love to do that. We found a corner off by ourselves and opened the Bible again. Sat there for another 20 or 30 minutes going through the scriptures about who Christ is and and how he's the only way of salvation, and on and on and on. And would you know, in just a very few minutes, that man bowed his head and trusted Jesus as his Savior. I can still see him in my mind. When we finished, he said, I've got to go catch my plane. He, he grabbed his suitcase in one hand and his briefcase in the other. I can still see him. I think about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch that went on his way rejoicing. I can see that fellow swinging both those bags, walking down that corridor on his way to his plane. And I thought to myself, I didn't even want to talk to anybody. But God had made a divine appointment. And I'm ashamed, church. I'm ashamed to think how many times while I was waiting, I just fussed about the waiting instead of letting God work. Would you bow your head with me for a moment?